there is no menu. They're trying to guess what's on the menu. There right. is no menu. There's That's no the menu. problem. That there is no menu. Right. That's There's the problem. No okay, we'll uh, make the menu. I want this. a hamburger with cheese. <laughs> we don't Sorry, have this. We don't do cheeseburgers okay. here. Okay. What do you... Uh, they, <laughs> what do they, you have? No, Chinese food. It's no, only Chinese no, food here. No, they don't want to even tell you. You have to like... No. The system is so broken. Welcome to the Mastering Medicare podcast, where we demystify healthcare and Medicare for senior-serving professionals and providers with your co-hosts, Dr. Alex Moseni and Dr. Amy Schiffman. Visit MasteringMedicare.net for show notes, additional episodes, and valuable resources. Okay, so welcome, everybody, to our Mastering Medicare podcast. I am Dr. Amy Schiffman. I am here with my co-host, Dr. Alex Moseni. Hello. And we are back for yet another fabulous episode of the Mastering Medicare podcast, which is helping to demystify the craziness that is the U.S. healthcare system. Today, we are having an amazing day. We are going to be diving into the world of Part B rehabilitation. And before I get too far into it, we're going to talk about Part B Medicare. For those of you who don't understand what that is, that is the part of Medicare that is the professional services side of Medicare that is not the hospital side of Medicare. And we have learned about this in the past couple of podcasts. We did a deep dive in case you want to go back and look at some of our early ones where we did talk a lot about Part B and how Part B rehab is different than Part A rehab. But basically, we're going to talk about Part B rehab today. We have an awesome guest in our studio today. And I am so excited about that. So, Katie, say hi. Hello. Hi. So I'm so pumped today because we have somebody in the studio today who has almost as much energy as me. <laughs> it's hard, it's it's hard really, to believe. I mean, like, not hard quite as much, maybe like 1% <laughs> separate. So that's great. And you also get my sense of humor. Again, Perfect. thank you. Yeah, great. <laughs> we have two amazing people on the uh, Skype today, right, Conrad? And uh, we're going to be able to learn a lot about the company that they are working for, which is called Fox Rehab. And I'm going to let each of them just take a second to introduce themselves. If they could just everyone say hi and just tell me your title at Fox Rehab, I'd appreciate it. Katie, you go. Take it away. Yeah, you take it away. Good morning. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Um, my name is Katie Biskey. I'm the area sales director for Maryland and Virginia at Fox. I've been with Fox for three years. I've been working in the healthcare industry for 20 years, starting out as an exercise physiologist, working in a cardiac rehab center, um, then transitioning to medical device and healthcare sales, which is where I've been and where I am now. So I'm glad to be here. Oh, we're so excited for you to be here today. I just think you guys are going to contribute to all of our listeners' understanding of the confusing, very, very confusing parts of Medicare. I think Part B Rehab actually was a super challenge for me when I was first starting my house calls practice Mm -hmm. because I couldn't understand how you could be going out into the world and like doing care in people's homes just the same as you were doing the care in brick and mortar. And we're going to keep, you know, peeling the... Peeling the pieces off the onion, right. but let's keep up with our introductions. All right, John Ross, you want to you want to take it away? Absolutely, thank you. I'm John Ross Neptune. I'm a speech language pathologist by trade. I have been a speech language pathologist for roughly 12, 13 years. Ten of those years has been here with Fox Rehab, and most recently, I'm the uh, clinical director for the speech language pathology department and and handle things from a quality standpoint um, and from a clinical standpoint with any type of support that I would need to give to our 200 plus speech language pathologists that are employed by Fox Rehab. Oh my gosh, that is a lot of speech language pathologists. 
in yes. one in one room. Can you imagine? <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine they're, all these spread across many many states? They're all evaluating yeah, how you're articulating all right? the time. You gotta just like articulate <laughs> perfectly every time. Okay. Mind your P's and Q's. Yes. Literally. And to, yeah, literally P <laughs> and Q. Okay. Megan, we would love to hear from you. Tell us about yourself. So my name is Megan Valenzano. I am a physical therapist by training. I've been a PT for almost 13 years now. Ten of those have been with Fox. I've done a lot with the practice. I started as a staff clinician. I eventually ran one of their skilled nursing facilities. And then in 2013, I became director of regulatory affairs. So I've been doing that now for almost seven years, which means I get to read and interpret Medicare and health policy all day, every day. Oh, my Very God. That's exciting. so awesome. That is like me. You're like me. Except for it you is, do yes. you do what you do, I do what I do, but I love <laughs> Medicare regs. All right, we're soul sisters. I love it. Okay. Are you also very popular at cocktail parties? Because I Beyond. <laughs> you have no idea. If I have one shot and start talking Medicare, people are like flooding in my direction. It's like magnetic. Yeah. It's magnetic. It's amazing. <laughs> it really is amazing. And it I added to my popularity um in twenty eighteen. I took over internal documentation review as well. Oh so my I god, that is those. even more sexy. Wow. <laughs> Isn't it? Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Internal documentation. Was that a promotion or a demotion? <laughs> <laughs> She's super amazing at it. I can tell you that. I'm really upset about being here at Fox. Well, I have a great job for you. (laughs) Would you like to read 10,000 chart notes a day? Great. Sign me up. Okay. So thank you so much for your introductions. Can one of you guys just tell me what is, first of all, you guys sound enormous. Like you sound like you're a huge, big, very large company. So will one of you tell me exactly what does Fox do? Because I think you might do more than I thought you did. So Someone take it away. I'll, I'll take that piece. All right, thank you. So Fox Rehab is a private practice that specializes in geriatric house calls. So we're an outpatient provider providing this service in the home for older adults. Fox, just as a little background, started in 1998. Tim Fox, he is a physical therapist. He's our, he's our founder. He was providing care as a therapist and realized people needed more in the home. These older adults weren't getting everything that they needed. He poured through the Medicare guidelines and realize you can provide outpatient services for therapy in a home or in a brick and mortar facility. He decided to start doing it in the home, started knocking on doctor's doors. And that was in 1998. In 2020, we are in 19, now 20 states. We just branched into the 20th state. Wow. Um, I'm not sure how many clinicians we have. Megan would probably have a better idea of that, but it's it's thousands of clinicians. Well, then I assume it's thousands and thousands of patients. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And Megan would have more information on that as well. But we are, you know, we've been in this Maryland area, that Maryland, Virginia, not quite as long. Pennsylvania, New Jersey is where it started because Cherry Hill is where our office is. Got it. But we, we've we just been growing. I mean, our, we are going to be going into so many more states as we move forward every year. There's just a lot of growth. There's a lot of need. So we're excited about that. Oh, wow. I'm really excited to learn about that. So all the clinicians that you have, they are all of what type of clinician? So they're all licensed therapists. So we don't have any techs or aides that work with Fox. They're all employed by Fox. We don't have any contracts. So our therapists, they're all licensed PT, OT, speech therapists. So that's um, physical scientists for oh, our sorry. listeners. Yes. No, no, no. I, I always have to do this because Alex doesn't really understand much. So <laughs> I have to interpret. He does look kind of confused over there. <laughs> yeah. It's really for Alex, actually. So we've got physical therapists, occupational therapist, and speech language pathologists. And so they're called speech language pathologists. Of course, I call them speech therapists. Is that wrong? Uh, John Ross might have to tune into that. John I mean, Ross, I- is that wrong for me to say speech therapy? No, it, it's it's not wrong. Uh, I think what you get when you hear the word speech therapist is my wife is a, a speech language pathologist as well. 
And she works in a public school system as a speech language pathologist. A lot of what she does is articulation and language and, and that overall child development part of speech language pathology. And I think when you hear the word speech therapist, your mind goes right to that. It doesn't go to um, a speech language pathologist working with an older adult with five chronic conditions. And we have to know those conditions and know everything about them, the ins and outs and the medical side of things. And if I tax someone too hard, that could set them into some form of medical emergency, right? So there's things like that, that I think you don't fully understand, or you don't fully grasp the, the overall abilities of an SLP working with this population as much by, by saying speech therapist. I think you capture that more with speech language pathologists, but, but well, that, yeah, no, that's I, I, very it, well it's stated. not incorrect, but yeah. Yeah, no. Know, and I, and I appreciate that. that because, and I'll just say this cause I am going to sort of like try and summarize a little bit about what Katie just said, but when we're putting orders, like as a physician, a nurse practitioner, a PA, who are the folks that can put in orders for this Part B types of therapies, we often write P-T-O-T-S-T. We don't write S-L-P. Just that's sort of interesting. All right. Thank you for that perspective. So, Katie, I'm just going to summarize what you just said, which is basically you guys are a large national company that provides in-home geriatric therapies that are considered to be outpatient, paid under Part B, and... You have physical therapist, occupational therapist, and speech language pathologist, and these guys all go into the home to provide care for geriatrics patients. Correct. Excellent. Well done. Thank you. <laughs> I like when I summarize things correctly. So when somebody says Part B rehab, it implies, of course, that the patient themselves must have Part B Medicare. Correct? Mm-hmm. Correct. Correct. How is this different than Part B? A rehab because we've talked on prior podcasts, which in part A is for our listeners out there who may have not heard our prior uh, podcast about part A and our deep dive. Part A is the Medicare that is the acute care spectrum. So it is the hospital, post acute care rehab, and then home health. Home health, part A services, they do provide quote-unquote, therapy. They provide it in the hospital under Part A. They provide it in rehab under Part A. They provide it in home health under Part A. Correct. How does Part B fit into that? So, so part, I'll, I'll, you know, kind of give a little uh, speech and then, like, you know, Megan could probably jump in here a little, too. So when, when I have conversations with providers like yourself to explain the difference, so Part A, which, you know, you're familiar and probably from your previous podcast, that's fully, you know, that's that's covered 100 percent. 100 percent. Patients don't have to pay anything. Correct. So they okay, like that. It. Right. I like so that. Patients homes, like that's that. why a lot of these services are, 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 are great because they're not paying for anything when they flip to Part B. By the way, why would they flip to Part B? Because they just don't qualify under Part generally, A anymore. Yeah, so their Part A is generally there's a time frame to it per se based on their their acute condition. Like right. what, when we work with home health partners, they can't keep them indefinitely. The time frame, the, the certification period, has a limit. Yeah. Um, so when they need it, their their goals for that episode of care have been achieved or accomplished, but they but they still have additional progress to be made. So goals of care get you to a certain point, but they still can, there's still a tra- either an upward trajectory or a maintenance trajectory Correct. that they are yeah. looking at. Okay, so basically like the, the, the job is not done, but it's done with them, I guess is a short Right, way, because Part A is just not going to pay for you to have care indefinitely. In, indefinitely. So that's when Part B kind of comes into play. But Correct. that's still a little vague for me. 
what what is the end point All right, for what part is the, A? So, like, if, pretend we are talking about the end of a Part A certification period from a therapy perspective. Can you give some idea as to what are some criteria that would determine that it was really the end of a Part A episode? Like, they they can they have a goal, which is I want to sit on the side of my bed, mm-hmm. and then once they're sitting on the side of my bed, their Part A is like, all right, I'm done. Yeah, and that's, I don't know if Megan, based on her... I was going to say, I think yeah. I might want to take this yeah. one. Yeah, all right, go for a good it. One for me. Oh, great. So there are a couple things that might say, hey, I'm done with a Part A stay. And it really has to go back to the fact of, do they still qualify for the Part A benefit? Because there are, there are people who will stay on Part A for extended periods of time if they need a lot of follow-up about a wound or, you know, if there's some kind of like new feeding or whatever it is that's going on at So home. like a skilled nursing stuff. Exactly. Got it. Um, if they no longer have a skilled nursing need, that's a, a real good trigger is like, hey, this care can now be provided under Part B. So we should transition them to the next level of care. Another one that's a real good reason to take somebody off Part A is if they're no longer considered homebound. And I personally think the definition of homebound is quite hilarious because it's super, super vague. Like the big thing that when they consider homebound is like a reasonable and taxing effort to get out of the house. And I always make the joke, like I have two small children. I, I think it's a reasonable and taxing <laughs> effort and I need an assistive device also known as a stroller. I mean, you know, like, <laughs> so the, and that's the part tough. A, those are the part A requirements, right? Like they part A, you must have a taxing effort to leave your house and also be over 65 in general. So, yeah. sorry, you know, it doesn't matter for you so much. But so what you're saying is that the 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 qualifying criteria for Part A, there's a couple of ways, and I'm going to dig a little deeper into one of them because I, I kind of feel where I, I understand where Alex is having troubles. Part A is if you're not homebound anymore, you can't get the Part A rehab or skilled mm-hmm. nursing or anything like that. If you no longer have skilled nursing needs, you can also... so. Now you no longer have skilled nursing needs under Part A rehab. But you might, but here's my question. You might still have Part A PTOT needs under Part A, no? And like, when does you that You can end? still do that. Right. You can still do that. And that really is up to the provider as to when they say, yeah, we think you're done. And it has to do with, I think, their understanding of how far they can take somebody. Ah, um, there are a lot of fallacies out there okay. as to what home care can cover. So, for example, I've been to a couple post-acute seminars, and one of the great examples is this idea that, like, once someone can walk to their mailbox, they can no longer be covered under Part A because they can make it to their mailbox. Now, as a PT, we all kind of go, yeah, but can they get back from the mailbox? (laughs) (laughs) You know, like, nobody wants to get their mailbox. That's a whole other topic for debate. But we get things like that because they're examples that maybe came from a continuing ed course or they came from a benefit manual at some point. People go, oh, well, that's the end point. And it's like, no, it's when you have reached whatever you think your goals are and the person is medically stable to move on to the next continuum of care. And the hard part here is like there is no hard and fast rule in Medicare. Thank when you. you would vague. Stop. It's super vague, like painfully vague. So Alex, who, who is making the determination, the ordering physician or somebody else or the PT agency, the the therapist. Does the therapy. therapist is the therapist making the decision, or is the physician making the decision, or is it a team decision? What? How does that decision for Part A happen? Best world, it should be a team decision. Every agency operates it differently. For some agencies, it might be the therapist. For some agencies, it might be a case manager who may be a nurse, maybe a therapist. It might be the physician. 
best world, it should be a team decision. Got it. Okay, so I don't want to dig too deep into part A because we could sit here and think about that for a while. But let's just say, okay, it's time. Now it's time for part B. How does that transition often get made? Or is that sort of like a big pain point that you guys have where patients coming off of part A and maybe the world that they live in doesn't know that there's part B that can keep going in the home with them, right? That That's sort of the, the beauty of part A to part B, correct? Yeah, I think that's what I see, you know, li- you know, living in the field, in the in the area, you know, talking to physicians and providers and home health agencies and other, you know, senior provider partners. It's our goal is to not provide, not to have a break in the care. So after the patient or, or the individual is, is done with their part A, they, they no longer need that benefit or they no longer can receive care, that we are here. So that's, so that's like a that's like sales. Yeah, I mean that's that is like that's exactly why we have a sales team. But also, so it so it it's there's so many components that do delay it. Yeah, I mean because it has if it comes for example, I mean you know if it comes from a home health agency, well then we still we need an order from a physician, so we need to get that. But then sometimes the doctor, you know, the physician or the MP, the PA, whoever, you know, it takes time for them to send us the order. So. There has to be this, as Megan referred to, you know, with, with if someone is done with home health or not, like there has to be a team effort. So we all have to work together. It's a team effort to so get there's a lot somebody. of collaboration. So that's it's it's easy, but it's hard because there's so many people involved in the picture. So there's so many reasons there could be a delay. And the PA patients don't know it's available. Or they don't know why. We're, they don't. They don't understand. Bingo. They you don't just understand. see me putting my finger on my yeah. nose. I think patients don't know it's available. I think that happens more often than not. They don't know it's available. Or if they're getting the call, they're like, well, I just had home health in here. Why are you? I don't need you. I just was here. So, so I think there, a lot of the times the patients need to be involved in these conversations, and sometimes they are. They don't remember. There's a lot, lot of that. There's so many, there's so many factors, and you being in the home, you you see all those barriers that, that we all have to work with. Yeah, yeah. So, so wait, let me let me digress just a little bit. Can sure. you walk me through what exactly is the role of a physical therapist in this patient population? What is the role of an occupational therapist in this patient population? And what is the role of speech language pathologist in this population? Because it's clearly we know it's not necessarily the same. It's not like oh my shoulder hurts. I think I'm going to go in and get a little like you know ultrasound and massage in right. a in a in a brick and mortar location tell me how it works in the home well I'll, I'll i'll flip this to john and megan but i will what i as a quick thing what i explain to patients easily and and some providers who might not be aware the yeah. quick and easy way i describe it is like pt helps you get where you want to go ot helps you do what you want to do so just to the, just to kind of explain how they're different because people are like they don't i'm not working i don't need occupational therapy i'm not i don't have a job that's not what we're talking about so i kind of Describe it that quick way to like a, a patient to say how we can help them. Right. That's just the, the basic way. But I know John and Megan can definitely. Right. Dive and I've, heard, and I've heard that physical therapy is below the waist. Yes. And uh, that above, occupational yeah. therapy is above. Which is the obviously. Yeah. Which is obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Someone just screamed and jumped. <laughs> she jumped. No, come back. Don't get the Lego set. Stay with us. Go ahead, Megan. Take it away. Oh, it kills my soul. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's so funny. All right, clear it up. <laughs> okay, so just to be just to be clear, physical therapists treat the whole body. Occupational therapists treat the whole body. Um, we just do it with different goals in mind, and I think that's where the confusion comes in. Like PTs, we are really focused on your movement and your mobility. So a lot of times, yes, we will we will treat strength, we will treat pain, we will do pretty much everything you might actually do in an outpatient clinic. We just have to treat it a little bit differently because most of us, you know, don't always drive around with ultrasound. 
So we'll work on what we call their functional independence. You know, can you walk? Can you stand up from a chair? Can you get in and out of bed? Can you make it to your mailbox and back, for example? Can you get in and out of a car? That kind of stuff. The OTs, their function is really more to look at, and I'm sure we've all kind of talked about this term before, activities of daily living. So Katie said, you know, it's what you do when you get to where you're going. So if you can get to the bathroom, can you actually do all of the tasks involved in using the bathroom? You know, they'll look at their dressing. Can they stand at the sink for a period of time to shave? That kind of thing. And that's, that's where the difference is. We do look at a lot of the same stuff. We're always looking at strength, balance, pain, stamina, but we're looking at them with different goals in mind. And that's really the thing to remember when you're looking at PT versus OT. John Ross, you want to talk about speech? Absolutely. And then you've got this third discipline to, to layer in here at times as needed. And our, I would think our, our main goal here is to work on that person's ability to communicate and access their world from a communication standpoint, whether it's through actual speech activities. So think of someone with, with a CVA that has something like CVA dysarthria meaning a stroke, or apraxia stroke, of speech. Stroke, yeah, yeah, so, yeah, stroke, yeah. stroke yeah. CVA, that type of thing. Is that person able to express their wants and needs? Are they able to communicate with their medical professionals that they're in pain? that they have a problem going on. I think that's probably the thing that people think of most when they think of speech. Are they able to use their language appropriately and on par with with what they need to communicate? From a voicing standpoint, are people able to hear them, right? When you think of someone with Parkinson's disease and some of those voicing deficits that come along with that, is that person able to make their needs known with their voice? Is it heard? Is it good quality? Uh, are there misuses and abuses there that you may want to um, address with different uh, approaches? Aside from that, you've got this whole cognitive communication as well side of it that you can deal with their ability to recall important information, attend to a simple everyday task if they need to be able to use executive functioning skills to navigate their environment and their home environment. Beside those things, you've got this other um, angle that SLPs address, and that is in the dysphagia realm or difficulty with chewing and swallowing foods and drinks safely. And and when you look at the older adult, there's a, a heavy percentage of them that do end up having difficulty swallowing nutritious foods and drinks safely, which puts them at risk for pneumonias and aspirations and upper respiratory infections and at risk for dehydration, right? If someone is having difficulty tolerating their liquids and they've you know, with this population and, and any population out there, someone starts having difficulty with something. Sometimes you see them not do that as much, whatever that thing is. So if it's drinking, they're not going to be drinking as much. And then that then plays into physical abilities and all kinds of things. If someone's not getting the proteins they need or getting the, the, the hydration that they need, that will play into a lot of other aspects of that person's ability to function in their daily environment. So we, we work heavily in that and, and come up with compensatory strategies and diet modifications and modes of intake that will help that person ingest nutritious foods and drinks to a point where they're able to keep their nutrition up, their hydration up, um, stay free of aspiration, and, and ultimately live a, a more quality-filled, enjoyable life that they can then function better in their environment. So all of those things kind of all play hand in hand. And it's a, it's a tall order when you have a person that is referred to you 
for one of these areas. And you get there and now they've got all of these other areas involved too that you need to address. And you can imagine our sessions are packed pretty tight when you have someone with multiple impact areas because a lot of those folks that we do work with, like the stroke I mentioned earlier, yeah, they may be having this R3 or speech or apraxia of speech or even expressive aphasia, but also you layer in this person now has a swallowing disorder as well. And what's the most important thing to address first? And how, how do I make sure I give everybody the appropriate amount of time? And it's a, it's a puzzle daily with your, with your treatment sessions, trying to give people what they need, also keeping value in the back of your head by not giving too much, right? Or not giving not enough, because then that person may end up in the hospital. So it's, it's a, there's a lot to think about when you're working with someone, but those are the main impact areas, I think, of someone working with the older adult uh, from an SLP standpoint. Wow. That is so helpful. Oh, my God. So that helpful. was so helpful. I, I'm not sure in my 13 years uh, post-residency I, I ever knew what occupational therapy actually was. <laughs> you know, I, I had some vague So thought. he didn't really pay attention when they no, came to No, they it was ne- never thought. It, it was, was never thought. thought. It, Correct. Was never... We were in a box. I, I, I thought it had about. something to do with like ergonomic keyboards or something. Like I truly like what is occupy like why is it called oh occupational God. therapy? So you know what you are? You're woke. Is that you're, what they, is that what they say today? You're yeah. hashtag woke. Oh my gosh. You're woke to I mean OT I feel now. like PT should be called mobility therapy and OT should be called functional therapy or something like that. Oh my like gosh, that. can like, we rename it right now? So that people know what can it we means. Call? Oh, be careful. Uh-oh. Very territorial. Be careful. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Yeah. Pissed no, everyone off. All, I mean, like, She's going to jump off the bridge again. Functions. No, you're right. You're right. That's true. But, no, but, I'm not going to jump but, off the bridge. <laughs> no. Okay, so, all right. So I'm going to, no. no. Okay, I'm going to summarize. Let me summarize um, kind of what you just said actually really badly because I'm predicting it's going to be a terrible. Basically that physical therapists are there to work with people to get them moving in a direction or doing things that make their sort of the the big, it's sort of big picture. It's sort of the moving the arms, moving the legs in a way that can move them into a place. And that the occupational therapists are like, oh, can you, we can teach you how to brush your teeth. So I'm trying to give like concrete examples, using toilet paper, brushing teeth, holding a fork, that kind of thing. And speech language pathology seems like it actually has, it's sort of a bifurcated type, two types of services. So correct me if I'm, I'm wrong here, that there's this cognitive side, which is looking at how to evaluate, I mean, which is, by the way, shocks me. I, I didn't know this until about three or four years ago that that speech language pathology f- sort of focused on cognitive evaluation slash communication yeah, yeah cognitive slash yeah yep. and that there's like there's a whole slew of tests that you can do to like mark out you know decline and and and, and you guys use these you get letter grades and stuff i mean I, I it was sort of amazing and then on the other side is the way that i have always thought of speech language pathology which is do you aspirate you know i mean it's sort of a swallow yes. study type of, i mean whenever i think of Speech language pathology, I'm like, ah, swallow study, swallow study, swallow study. Yeah, bedside swallow study. So, and that was from my inpatient hospital experience. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and I I think that was you doing what you needed to do to address that person's needs that were most impactful at that moment in time. Right, right. So you get the swallowing taken care of, and now, okay, great, this person's safe from an eating and swallowing standpoint. Now, can they communicate? Right. Can they function from that standpoint? Right. And- that, that seems to be the sweet spot for, for Fox SLP is we're now able to do those types of things and, and get out of that rut of 
you know, I, I think back at my days in subacute rehabs, we were so busy with so many people coming through that my caseload was pretty much all dysphagia. And oh, I would imagine, was, yeah. You could do whatever you needed to do to get that handled. And then everything else that happened was was great as well. But it, it seemed like that was the majority of what we were doing. And, and thinking back, I wish we would have probably had more SLPs employed at, at some of these places I've worked so that you could have more time to do some of those other, you know, address some of those other areas. Right. And, and Alex and I come from the emergency medicine background, which is so it's like hitting things with hammers. This is like just little tapping. You know, I mean, the amount of time and patience it takes actually just as a career choice and from a professional perspective, the amount of patience that a physical therapist and occupational therapist, speech language pathologist have to have to watch somebody get slowly help them to get slowly better over time is actually kind of amazing. I, I mean, I don't have the patience for it. I, know, I get anxious just thinking I just, about I know, it. literally, I'm like, oh my God, you're not better? I was here for like 15 minutes already. <laughs> right, why right. aren't you better? You know, but that's why I'm so appreciative of the fact that there are people out there who do want to spend the time and really feel so personally, like professionally happy when their patients make progress. It's kind of amazing to watch. You know, it's funny that you even say that because- as I see and work with the Fox clinicians, when I meet, if I meet a PT, OT, and a speech there, SLP, I could tell you which, who is what. Like really? Megan, Megan is a physical, like Megan, she's like you, she's like yeah. me. Oh, I'm sorry. Like, yeah. like, I feel like physical therapists, and I don't know, this is very general. They're, oh, they're a little bit more high strung like me, yeah. but OTs and SLPs, they are very, oh my gosh. Sometimes I'm like, how, how, how are you doing your job? Oh, they're it's very, so, it's, it's patient. amazing. Not that There's... you're not patient, Megan, don't get me wrong. No, but <laughs> I am, I'm, well, I'm highly impatient. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> No, we have so, a lot of energy. Not that they don't, but it's just they they're yeah. so good at what they do. It's it just, is so amazing. And then when they come to work for Fox, they're working with geriatric, you know, older adults. So, oh, my God, they right? have where to the, be very where, calculated and very patient. Yeah. And it's awesome. To and where see. the differences that you are looking for are like microscopic, like a nuanced. They're so nuanced, meaning like the average Joe would not be like, yeah, he's doing better. Like they might be like, he looks the same to me. Right. But like from an occupational therapy or SLP perspective, there's like major Oh, yeah. Changes. Very true. It's, yeah, it's, it's amazing to so see. so kind of incredible. So, all right, let's dive a little bit into what Part B, we now know what services you guys provide, what services Part B pays for for therapies. How do they pay for them? Can you tell me, number one, how many physical therapy, occupational therapy, or SLP therapies exist out there for any given patient in any given year in any given month and like sort of what the time frame looks like and who pays and just you know go for it just go someone answer that megan probably is chomping at the bit that's a big question yeah it is um <laughs> well what is medic what is medicare pay what is what does medicare pay for well like, for just medicare part b just part as, b. A, as a generality they cover 80 percent of service outpatient correct services. so we have the 80 20 got okay, it yeah. we're, we're on so that. as yeah. a fox Fox provider of therapy that's consistent with us and they either are responsible for their 20% or they have a secondary that can cover that so that's how Got we it. operate the same perfect. so Thank that's kind of what I'll pitch in and then Megan can kind of dive in a little yes, bit more perfect regarding the coverage yeah so how long and how often and you know who somebody can see really it's very similar sort of I don't want to say similar to the part a model but similar in the fact that you have to meet the coverage requirements to continue under part b and Medicare, interestingly, depending on which part of the country you work in, um, sometimes interprets them differently. Sometimes it's the same. But it really goes back to these two basic concepts of 
medical necessity, which is what is so complex about the patient that they need a skilled clinician to be working with them. And is there a skilled need? So like what specifically does the PT, OT, or SLP have to do that a person who is lesser trained, whether it be an aide or a caregiver or a daughter or the patient themselves, what specifically, like what is the clinical decision-making that has to happen that a regular person off the street couldn't do? And, you know, a lot of people, especially when, I don't know if you guys want to talk about maintenance care, because that's a whole other, you know, bag of worms. But like the question always comes up, like, well, how long can I see somebody? And there is no definition as to how long you can see somebody. You can see somebody as long as it's medically necessary and skilled. And as long as you can document that, you know, Medicare will continue to pay for it. Now I say, you know, some of the different places in the, in the different regions, the, the contractors look at those definitions a little differently and some are more strict in it than others, but those are your two basic requirements. But is there, but is there like sort of, you know, we are always taught, oh, you get, you know, this amount of dollars as a pile of cash that is supposed to go for part B, I guess PT is together with OT and then there's another pile for speech language pathology. Is that correct? In, in, so, in, the in theory. The therapy cap. Yeah, so therapy the ther- caps. There yes. is a therapy cap and it's actually PT and speech oh, that PT are combined. Oh, PT and speech are together. Oh, I got it. Okay, yeah, got it. yeah, because, you know, this makes a lot of sense and I say that in sarcastically because okay, it makes absolutely it. Noted. no sense. Noted. Yeah. We'll see if we can um, put something on the podcast to reflect the sarcasm. <laughs> yes. That, that It makes no sense. There is sort of a fallacy out there that it's because of a misplaced comma somewhere. And that's actually not true. If it's you like actually mis- look at the social. Yeah, like Verizon went down because of a missing semicolon. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, no. So what um, is this cap? Could somebody yeah, explain tell it? Me the, no, tell me the dollar amount. So... <laughs> So it changes every year. Okay. We get a raise every year. Uh, it's usually around thirty to forty dollars, which is very generous for Medicare. This year, it's twenty eighty for PT and speech, and twenty eighty for occupational therapy. So, so let me just 2000... okay. let me reiterate: it's two thousand dollars, and then another eighty dollars. So two thousand eighty dollars for yes. PT and speech all squished together, and another yep. two thousand eighty dollars for OT. All by itself. Per patient per year? Per, is it per calendar per year? year? Is it per calendar year or per year of some other year? Like, is like it really counts? Yeah. No, uh, was it so 12 part months? B actually, so part B actually works on the calendar year. It's not like skilled nursing in the hospitals that work from like October to October. Part B actually works January to December like normal people. The nice <laughs> thing, though, that we got in the therapy cap, the therapy cap has been around for a really, really long time. Yeah. And we as a profession have spent a long time advocating against it. And we got a permanent exceptions process in 2018. And what that means is that we are allowed to attach a modifier to our billing to go above that therapy cap if we believe the services are medically necessary and skilled. Nice. So, That's so huge. Even if, it's huge. Yeah. And we've, we've been advocating for that. It, they used to give us like, give us a two year extension on our ability to use it or a six month extension. What we finally got in 2018 was you can do this for forever. You don't have to keep asking us if you can do it. So wait, I'm, I'm yeah, yeah. totally confused. Yeah, okay. now. I mean, the services had to be medically necessary to begin with. Right. So what is, so exactly. why does a cap even exist? Amen, wow. sister. Yeah. <laughs> I, I completely agree with you. <laughs> Okay, so the cap um, so is... It's, it's bullshit. It's meaningless now. Yes, correct. <laughs> it's a budget Beep. thing yeah. that okay. was not popular 
so they finally figured out how to fix it forever. It's the best way I can say it. It's basically it. a joke. You just get to the end and then you just put the modifier on once you've surpassed that dollar amount, basically. I mean, I'm not saying you're doing that. I'm just saying, but like for like Parkinson's disease, diseases where you can continue to make progress or at least maintain, because if you stop, there's 100% going to be a regression. Like 100%. Well, exactly. I mean, even if you have somebody who literally like tears their rotator cuff in March and then they like blow a meniscus in September they're going to need more than that. Like, it's just more, it's part of life, unfortunately. So is it, Um, is it very diagnosis specific? Because like, I could, I could argue, right? Like that there's a bed bound patient with dementia that you're going to go in there and maybe teach the caregiver how to do some movement. You're not, that one's not going to need modifiers because there's no medical necessity there. Correct. I'm just trying. No, there's no diagnosis. Nothing, nothing that specific about it. So can you give me Um, some good diagnoses that would in fact, be under that sort of where we know we're going to surpass our 2080. These are some diagnoses that are common for that. ALS, Parkinson's. I wouldn't even say that because it's so dependent on the patient. Like I had a patient with so ALS diplomatic. that I actually discharged oh, okay. after I would say maybe 10 sessions because he was still so cognitively intact that I could train him on it and say, okay, when you hit a point where this home exercise program is no longer appropriate for you, this is when you come back to me. Which is one of the, which is one of the nice things about the Medicare program. And everybody always asks me like, what is the limit? How do I know? And I personally don't ever want Medicare to put that in a manual because I like being okay. able to make that so decision. So we like the vaguity. So let me just, Alex. Right, I have you, a lot of questions. Okay, yeah. Alex, you go. Your <laughs> so, brain's going. <laughs> so this $2,080 limit, is that the maximum yes. that Medicare will pay for its 80% portion? Or is this for including the, the 20% total bill? Oh, it's a really good question. And I got to be honest, I don't know. I think it's total build. I think it's like total. Okay. I, think it's Medicare it's total allowable. I think it's Medicare yeah. allowable. I think. Yeah. And then but t- I don't want to like misspeak. Yeah. Okay. It's being that's recorded. Fine. Yeah. And- that's <laughs> all right. We'll erase oh. anything that's uncertain. <laughs> yeah. Uncertainty is um, cut. Yeah. <laughs> and then t- talk, talk to me about un- unit economics here. Like a typical session has lasts how long? And in, in, in the industry, what does a t- typical session cost? So this is a fun conversation. Does anybody else want to take this I'm one? I'm glad you're on, like Everybody else <laughs> being really quiet right now. Okay. So industry-wide, and this is old data that I'm going to talk about, it was three point something CPT codes per session. And if you look at sort of your average reimbursement for a CPT code, it's anywhere from, I would say, 25 to $27. So you multiply that by three and you get... I don't know, 75, 82, something like that. We as a practice are a little bit different. Uh, I think in part because we treat people who are a little bit more complex than sort of your standard brick and mortar outpatient facility. So we tend to average closer to four units per visit, which is a little bit closer to 100, 110, 115 per visit. John Ross, if you have different numbers for us, Megan, I'm just going to interrupt you for just a second because our 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 listeners may not be completely familiar with the CPT coding. CPT code. But I will I will just give a very brief overview, which is you're basically saying that you can do four types of activities with that patient. That's generally what you guys are doing in your sicker highly complex, multi-morbid polypharmacy patients as compared with, they may only be able to do three types of activities with people who are more well. Yeah. Let me make sure I understand what you're saying there. Are you saying like, if you go to somebody's house for an hour, you'll spend 15 minutes helping them with toothbrushing and then 15 minutes with 
I don't know, just standing and at a sink, and each of these is a separate CPT code? Is that what we're saying? Yes and no. Okay. And it, it goes back to the, I don't, I don't know how much in the technicality that you guys want to get to. It goes back to the underlying definition of the CPT code and the underlying purpose of the intervention. So for example, one of our common CPT codes is therapeutic exercise. And you know, it's anything to improve strength, range of motion, endurance, things like that. So we may do five or six different exercises that would all fall under that code. Got it. So like it, it kind of, it depends. The, the OT examples are a little bit harder. The ones you brought up about toothbrushing and I'm sorry, I forget. What was the other one? Standing next to the Standing sink. Standing at a sink. Standing at the sink. So depending on why you're doing it, they may or may not fall under different CPT codes. So mm. toothbrushing, because it is if you're doing it specifically as part of a morning ADL, that would tend to fall under something that we call uh, self-management. It's a 97535. And if you're standing at the sink and you're shaving and you're continuing that ADL, while it's a different activity, it may still be billed under the same code. Mm. If you're doing it just because you're working on balance and that's all you're trying to do, then you would bill it under a neuromuscular re-ed. So it kind of depends. And that's where things get a little bit gray. And it's honestly where we get, I think, a lot of our questions. John Ross, I don't know if you want to talk about SLP coding because SLP coding is a whole other monster. Yeah, SLP CPT codes is definitely a different, I guess a different animal or a different fox, if you want to call it a specific but, um, type of animal. Sorry, that's all I got. Have you for that canned? One. Is that was that planned? <laughs> no, it wasn't. It wasn't. Well, then no, kudos that's, that's to you. Mixed. We have what's called service-based codes. We also have some um, codes that would be time-based that would function like uh, the therapeutic exercise or the neuromuscular reeducation CPT code. SLP, it's a little more based on you've got one specifically for dysphagia, and if you do anything underneath that diagnosis or that problem area, that's going to get captured under that service-based code for treatment of dysphagia. And then if you have one under, if you're doing a treatment that day, in addition to the, the dysphagia treatment around language or communication, there is a, another service-based code that you could add to that session for that day that would capture all of your work with a low-tech augmentative communication device or with a a voicing activity that you're doing with someone. What is um, a look? Can, also, can you tell me what a tell tell me what that is? A you said something with a low tech device. What did you say? So so low tech augmentative communication. So what is think that? of someone. So think of someone. I don't know if you've seen the television shows. Uh, I think it's called Speechless, where the the gentleman in the in the show uses a really high tech communication device. Right? It's the computer. You think of Stephen Hawking. Right? Uses yeah. a, a high tech augmentative communication device. Low tech would be things like pictures or maybe using gestures, things like that, where you're you're working with someone not through that high tech mode, but maybe more so on a picture communication system where if they want something to drink, they can show you and point to a picture in, in, in a little mm -hmm. manual that you've made for the person of a glass of water. And now that person's able to then request that receive that and then that communication exchange has been completed so that would be something that would fall under that speech and language uh treatment code and we do a lot of that with the the population of of individuals that we work with from strokes to cvas or you know strokes and cvas same thing to dementia to something like als right where you may be working with someone 
on maybe even a high-tech device at that point. That would be then another CPT code that would capture the, the high-tech use of augmentative communication. So it, it's, it's nuanced on the actual um, purpose of the activity, similar to, to, to PT and OT, but we don't have as many buckets to choose from. But are, so, so, we, so to summarize, though, what you guys are saying is that approximately $100 worth of charges are created with each mm-hmm. interaction. And then with this, is, is that cap- is that right? Is that correct? About correct? I would say that's a good guess. Yeah. Okay. And it, then with, it's good. Yeah. With this cap, it, it, how do you know where you are relative to the cap? Are you just looking at what you have charged that year, or is there a way to look it up? Yeah. Like, what happens if they were using another exactly. physical therapy? Yeah. Is there a same and similar way of you guys looking it up? Like, how do you know? Is it like surprise? You don't get paid, or like, <laughs> right. what? How does that? How does that work? That's no, there is. Uh, so Medicare has a common working file that displays what has been billed. And why did, I, I so, say that because this is crazy. So why does that billed. not exist on the, the Part D side, right? Yeah, that, that's what that was. What a we major were trying, yeah. hole on the Part D side. Yeah, and also when the Part B lab side. Remember, that yeah, was yeah. what Andy it, Diamond was right. talking about on the Part B side. So the common working file, you guys have access to it only for your specific code set? Or is this accessible, do you think, for every code? And maybe we just need like a whole session on that. So the common work, I mean, when we go in and check it, we can go in to see if a part A home health episode is open because we can't treat if one of those is open. So we can see sort of if that's open or if they've used that benefit. We can see if they've used the skilled nursing benefit and we can see how much has been billed for under their part B outpatient therapy benefit. Is this like a online uh, cloud based thing you log into or how does this work? It's okay. So I, I'd really have to talk to revenue. Like, I'm going to be honest, I have general knowledge of common working file because I don't use it every day. You do have to have specific credentials to log into it. I'm not 100% sure if there's a fee or not for it. I mean, it's Medicare, so there's likely a fee. I, I don't know. I think there's like a per check thing. But yeah. I mean, Each time you check, just... they charge you. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I wouldn't, oh, I my gosh. Let me just put it that way. I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> because Medicare um, wants you to pay to get give good care. You oh should pay gosh. to get good and give good care. So, but this is fascinating because so I, I think I want to just, let's just do some simple math in our heads. You're saying that based on the sort of the caps that any person who is in Part B rehab, just based on the caps, is going to get about 20 sessions of physical therapy and speech therapy squished together. And they could get 20 sessions of occupational therapy by itself. So about 40 sort of touch points from an organization like yours, assuming we don't use modifiers, but of course we're going to end up using modifiers because people are going to need maintenance and all of that kind of thing. So how often does a physical therapist usually go to a person's home? Oh, okay. Yeah, how, how often? Well, like once a week, so once every two when weeks? We like get, one, when two our therapists start yeah. a case with a patient, yeah. they, do the, they develop a plan of care, which we ask the doctor to yeah. agree upon. And, you know, so the plan of care, I mean, usually it's usually we try and see our patients three, two to three times per week. Mm-hmm. That obviously is a conversation based because our patients aren't homebound. So their availability is based on I mean, our sessions are based on their availability. So yeah. we might we have to come to an agreement of the scheduling based on the therapist's availability, the patient's availability. Yeah. So I know as a general rule, we do try and see them two to three times per week for PT, for OT. Speech may be a little different. And John could discuss that. So that's that's an overall goal. Again, within everyone, within the patient's acceptance. Now, a lot of times, if patients have a copay, they don't want to be seen as much because they have to pay up for that. They they don't they can't be seen as frequently because they can't afford that. Because if they don't have a secondary yeah, insurance, they secondary. they're going to be left with twenty percent. Yeah, so they were like, so I, that I'll is see a, that is a big a friction point for you guys. And ha- yeah. yeah, well, let me before we go on, that 
on like a scale of one to 10, 10 being a frick, like the worst kind of friction point ever, do patients up front know that they may be responsible for 20%? Yes. Actually, I just got an email this morning. When, when we call our patients to welcome to them to the practice and identify this is your therapist that will be working with you. This is your referral source. You know, this is the who provided referred you. This is your insurance. We verify it. And if they don't have a secondary, they have to agree to, you know, acknowledge hey. that and consent to care. I just got an email this morning. A patient said, I can't afford that. I'm not going to do it. So they won't get back getting therapy. So basically that's about 20 bucks per session. Oh, it could be 20 to 40. I mean, we oh. do tell, we give them a range because yeah. we, based, as Megan said, based on those CP2 codes that are, mm-hmm. that are implemented during that session, it, it varies from patient to patient based on the goals and based on what they're able to do. Right. So that is a friction point. I mean, I, most of our patients have a secondary that have coverage. Yeah. But and there will you are know people. what that coverage is in advance? Exactly. So we have we clear all that with the insurance, and I thankfully don't have to do all that. But that's our home office has a wonderful team that handles that. And they call each secondary insurance and They verify company. in a system similar to that that, Meg, that uh, Megan ad- addressed. So they have yeah. other systems similar. Yeah. And then we'll know what their rough estimate or hard 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 co-pay will be, and we'll talk about that with the patient or the POA, whoever is involved in their care. Power of attorney. Yep. Got yeah. it. Yep. Because some patients, obviously, if they're a cog- cognitive impairment, they aren't a liberty to be making those decisions. Exactly, so, yeah. Um, so we do get the power of attorney involved as well. So, so yeah, so we know that calling the patient prior to their start, that's a conversation that's had because they do have to consent to that if there is any out-of-pocket. But like I said, most of our patients don't, but it does happen. Yeah, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, sure. That uh, does impact the care. I don't know. Megan might talk about that, like the average, right. you know, visits, but that's kind of our, right. you know, two to three times a week. Like right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah. And I, I just want to add to you, you still have to be very careful with, you know, the, the generalization of how many visits someone gets, because it still goes back to that person's needs. And from a speech standpoint, the evidence is still emerging on the efficacy around some some things. And it's you have to be very careful. There's not, you know, you get someone with a stroke or a CBA and the evidence or the literature tells you that person needs three times a week. It's just not at that point yet. So you need to make a decision based on that person's complexities, the amount of goals you have um, and everything and put that all into a blender and then come out with an agreed upon frequency that you're going to see that person to meet those goals in the most efficient way possible. And it, it can be rather challenging when you're, when you're setting up a plan of care for someone, you know, and that's something that you have to do ongoing to decide if that frequency is still where you need to be. Maybe you need more. Maybe you need less. Maybe we need to titrate down towards the end of a plan of care to ensure that that person is going to fall through on a home exercise program, right? So there's a lot of other things that that go into that. It's not just you say three times at the beginning and then at the end, that last week, you saw them three times. Well, maybe those last three visits are split over three weeks, yeah. right? And it's oh, it's right. something that we so have like a wind to down. You can like sometimes wind it down because you yes. know that they're sort of there's not much progress they're gonna, you're going to make or sort of the, the patient's going to be able to do a lot of it themselves. And you're like, OK, I'll come once a week as we wind down. Yep. With so, the option of potentially ramping it back up if during those wind down periods you start seeing decline again or see sure. opportunity for um, more progress to be made. Yeah. Or change in the home exor- exercise plan. Um, Got it. Yeah. I, I had a, a person one time that it, it, he presented with Parkinson's disease and we were working on a voicing exercise program. And he, like many individuals with Parkinson's, you would go one day and they would be functioning very well. You go the next day, maybe they missed their medication time by 30 minutes. And that person is a different 
presentation completely from what you're used to seeing out of that, that patient. And you have to modify that home exercise program for that day, right? Because by doing the, the, the original mm-hmm. one, you may tax them too much to the point where the wife has trouble getting them back in their bed later in the day because they're so worn out from the home exercise program because they were having a bad day. So those are the types of nuance that you have towards the end when you're trying to get someone on board with a home exercise program and how you can help that person keep their function at that level longer. And then sometimes there's some back and forth there where, okay, maybe on this day where he's not functioning as well as he did the day before, maybe you cut the home exercise program in half, or maybe you skip it all together and right. see how he responds later in the day. And it's, it's, it's a back and forth with that to try to find the sweet spot for someone. And that is all skilled, right? Because you're there reevaluating it and reassessing that person's ability to do that. And that's where the frequency and duration and all that comes in, where it's, it's not a cookie cutter approach, which makes our jobs pretty difficult because you still have to try to hit that mark with someone and, and make sure you do it in the most efficient way possible. Got it. I have another question yeah. here on the payment side. So we so far we've talked mostly about fee for service Medicare. Yeah. So are outpatient, I mean, uh, Part B rehabs involved in value based care arrangements at all, or special programs with ACOs or Medicare Advantage? So it's something that we are having these conversations. I mean, I know in this Maryland Virginia area, we're not at. I mean, that's hard, hard to answer. So these are conversations that we're trying to have and get involved with a lot of these organizations. Sure. But it's 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 tough. We're, Fox is really different. What we do is some it's just, it's a it's a very it's a great we're a great, you know, service for our older adults. But it's, we're, we're different. No one else does it. So it's kind of like, well, how do you fit in and where do you where do you go? I don't have that experience at all. Yeah, as a no, you don't. Doctor, we know. It's like, that. And also that's that's would be facetiousness and sarcasm. <laughs> also, no, trying to prove your worth to an organization that doesn't really even understand what you do is actually hard. Like, it's not like we're selling donuts and you're like, well, my donuts are better because I have frosting (laughs) and sprinkles. I mean, you're literally like, so what are donuts? Like that's, you're at that point where it's a totally foreign concept to a lot of people. I have sat through, I think probably you've been in those rooms where you're trying to explain to somebody, Part B Rehab is like a brick and mortar outpatient rehab just in your home. Yeah. And they go, Oh, that makes a lot so your of sense. Home, your home health. Oh, so your home, oh, so your home health. You go, which don't is, know. Which is no. <laughs> we are not either home health or home care or house calls or any of those things. We are Part B Rehab in the home. Is that yeah. the actual title, Part B Rehab? Like you guys, so well, I, I didn't know that. So you guys don't go by the title of home health. Well, no. So what? It, home health, the generality, home health is, is part, part A. a. Okay. That's like Always. Your, Always. your home health agency. Whenever you see that crazy stuff on the web, you got to stop reading Google. Okay. I mean, it's just wrong, wrong, wrong. <laughs> then there's the home care is usually those, those private, private duty, duty private companies duty, that you're right. paying for. Yeah. So even though we are care in the home, but we're not home care. So we, we do say we're an outpatient on wheels. We're an outpatient brick and mortar in the home. We, we are a geriatric house called practice. So those are all terms that we use. Sure. Yeah. Um, but when you... When you the, the easy thing, I was just at a presentation last week for a big neurology session in in Columbia, and we said this whole thing, and the doctor looked at me. You're your home health. I mean, it's like you to can't. God, it was you like- can't. <laughs> After all that, you're like so because they know only three words. There's only yeah. three words. There's home health, home care, and house calls. And if you're not one of those three, they're like, wait, I don't. I just don't get it. Well, and they still. It's just because it's, home health is just such a routine for most providers, sure. right? Because right. most of their patients they need it, or maybe. And and they they understand how to get it also moving, yeah. which is actually kind of sort of the next line of questioning I really want to go yeah. into, which is 
How does somebody actually, let me take it back. I know you well enough to know that you come to my office when I am doing house calls and you'll say, I have a bunch of pieces of paper for you to sign for orders for patients that you have ordered Part B rehab for. Mm -hmm. But I knew you existed. Mm -hmm. So you are, you have this uphill battle of educating providers on what you do so that you can get orders from them. But you also have an uphill battle with the home health agencies saying, we are not against you. We are for you. When the patient is done, can you help us help this patient? Mm -hmm. So, and then you also have to help the patients understand what you do. So you are, the, the marketing and sales for this is so complexified that I, it, it blows my mind. It is. And I think that's, that's why we have the sales team that, you know, they're, we keep growing just because you have to have a lot of face time with providers and with whoever's handling the referrals in the offices. Sometimes it's not the provider, it's just a referral yeah. coordinator or a case manager because they are used to a routine. And I've had a doctor last week tell me like, I know you exist. He said, you're just not my routine. And I said, well, it's my job to come, keep coming back to remind you, like just to make sure, you know, stop by to the office and always remind them of who the, who a great patient would be. And when you're conti- after home health, like if they need additional therapy, we could be a great source in the home, various situations. So it is. it does take a lot of persistence on our part, a lot of creativity with marketing. And we have a whole team of that. But we're, you know, we're big, but we're still growing, that we still have a lot to do. So what are the most common types of doctors that would refer to you? So primary care and family practice, family medicine would be the big, you know, the the bread and butter, maybe, I suppose. A lot of neurologists, because we work a lot with our older adults, very complex. Yeah. We have a lot of um, neurologists that refer to the practice. Great. We work a lot with pain management doctors. Oh, pain management. Mm -hmm. We get... Oh, because of mobility problems. Yeah. or I mean, I'll be honest. Most We have a lot of just low back pain. I mean, who doesn't have low back pain? I have low back pain. I have it right now. Right now. I know. I'm switching I how I'm PT. sitting. So we do get a lot of older adults in, you know, in the pain management setting that just, they're going to be referred for therapy. It's part of their plan of care with mm-hmm. whatever modalities they're implementing in an office. They recommend therapy. So we work a lot with the pain management offices, the big, the big centers, the small centers, what have you. Orthopedics is something we do in maybe certain areas. It might be more than others. You know, a lot mm-hmm. of orthopedic practices, larger ones have certain places that they send their patients post, re, you know, post-op, if they have a hip or a knee, they have a plan for them and that's, they're part of a system. Mm-hmm. But we do get referrals from, from orthopedics and the, it just depends on the situation, the family situation. Right. Like it's cold today. Patients yeah. are, they're going to cancel. I mean, it hurts to walk outside for me sometimes, you know, depending on my, the day. So some, you know, if there's a situation where the, they're going to, they're going to not be compliant or they're going to cancel often, or they have to depend on family, they may, you know, they'll refer someone to us because we can our therapist will go and they're going to, the frequency, they're going to be more compliant with therapy and we're not going to Im- impede anyone's schedule or any family member's schedule is not going to get messed up. So there are some advantages to that. So, but those are the big, the primary care, family medicine, neurologist, pain management. So if I'm a, if I'm a primary care doctor and I'm listening to this, mm-hmm. what would you like to tell them about, like, what are the three most common situations that you think they should be thinking about using somebody like Fox for? That's a good question. So I think when we first, when I, when we meet with a physician, say there's a physician that doesn't know about Fox, that isn't familiar and doesn't refer, always ask, asking them like what situations they're referring for therapy. Cause nine times out of 10, when I talk to these physicians that are working with older adults, they re, they're referring people for therapy for a gait abnormality. They had a fall. They're weak. They're just not strong. They're just, they're getting older and they need, as they say, they say tweaking. So for those individuals, 
we have this conversation, you know, when they're referring, where, how, do, like, what's your referral process? Like, why, where are you referring them to? And, you know, we try and get them to the point of the advantage of being in the home because these older adults generally could benefit from a home assessment, which yeah. is part of what we do. So, so the, the, the big one is like, I mean, just, just those three, like, or the, the gate, if someone has a history of falls or if they're fear, afraid of falling, so that's a big risk factor for falling. If their gait is off, if their balance is off, and if they're having weakness. So is the is getting this service in the home more expensive than getting it in a in an office setting? It's because we bill Medicare Part B, it's the same billing. Exact and, same CPT codes. And there's no trip fee? No. And the one how we are different from a clinic, in a in a clinic you very often I don't know if when I've had therapy in a clinic, the therapist does not only work with me one on one. They're working with multiple people. Right. They're oh, setting me yeah. up on this and they're putting that up on that. Oh, so they're seeing multiple people at one time where we're only seeing one on one. So this patient that you're referring to, Fox, will get the same therapist every time. We'll, we'll only get that therapist for that visit. We have a lot of husband wife couples, but we can't treat them at the same time. Like okay. we, we can't like we, we can't do that. Mm. Sure. So that's something that we have to obviously work work around too. like we can't see you. But like that because that's one of our things. We do a one on one plan of care. So that's that's an advantage right there. So, a lot of older adults like that. Right. So it's more consistent, personalized care, and they don't have to drive anywhere. Yeah. They don't have to park. They don't have to pay for parking. No, and they're and, and, and they cost the same. Correct, and their family member doesn't have to take the day off of right. work. I mean, it's it's like a win win for it sure. It seems like a no brainer, and and so you don't really understand why everybody that that you see that's sixty five or older that has this and, is not getting it in their home. I mean, and, right? And just to reiterate... And you, don't, and you don't have to be homebound. Oh, you, correct. you do not have do to Do not mean, have to be homebound with this. Correct. This is literally just on-the-go, Part B rehab. Hmm. Which is so totally different yeah. than Part A, right? So, yeah. like, Part A has, like, all these rules okay. about, like, have to be homebound, yeah. you know. It's, so, it's I, I'm curious as to the kind of the other side of this card, which is there are providers who are referring to you guys, what are some of the mistakes you see in that process? What could they be doing better or differently? In the process that they go to refer when they refer to us? Yeah, in, either in the referral document itself or maybe waiting too long to refer to you guys or like what are the kind of common issues and problems? Well, I mean, just from my, my <laughs> perspective, it seems so easy. Like we'll get a prescription, but we won't get the patient's information. Like we don't get their demographics. Because we go to the home, we need that. We need their address. We need their phone number. But when I have a referral that's, that's nine times out of 10. If it's incomplete, that's what's missing. So, and that's just like a just the office. They they thought they sent it. They didn't. The, yeah. the MA just saw the referral, saw the script and sent it. They didn't send the demo. It's just kind of like people were busy. So that's, I mean, it seems so silly. But that, yeah, it's so common though. Yeah. But I they're mean, not thinking that, that when that prescription comes in, you need a way to contact that patient because they're not coming to your office. And, and, and very importantly, you guys are a referral agency, meaning like you can't just solicit patients be, in, in, in an environment and be like, oh, look, that guy's walking really funny. I think we could, <laughs> oh my <laughs> look, that guy just drank a Coke and he coughed. You know, yeah, I mean, you can't just no. be like, he nearly aspirated. Yeah. I think we should walk over and see how this how guy's doing. How tempting as it is sometimes you're like, oh my gosh, they could use Fox so bad. But you know, that's not, no, it's not so, something. So you really do need an originating source, which has to be an MD, an NP, or a PA. 
So in Maryland, and I know this can be different from state to state, so right. Megan can address that too, but we do require in Maryland, Virginia, so an MD a, or a mid-level, a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant can yeah. provide the orders. Got it. And they need, and they need, it needs to say PT slash OT eval and treat. Like what's a typical order look like? Physical therapy? Or for, what is the ideal order? What is the ideal yeah. order? Good point. So the ideal order is whatever is appropriate for the patient. I mean, quite honestly. No, but so, what should the orders say? Like, oh. if you want physical therapy, what should it say? Ideally, we'd love the diagnosis, why, why we're treating the patient, why we're getting the referral, and what yeah. disciplines are needed. And is by diagnosis... Fall, is frequent falls a diagnosis? I mean... Do Megan, you need an ICD-10 code or just... Can the, I answer that one? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. We're, 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 like, we're like attacking... I yeah. see that this one and that one. Yeah, okay, yeah. Go, go for it, Megan. Yeah. like, I'm hearing Katie and I'm like, oh, can I help? But I don't want to jump <laughs> yeah, in. No, yeah, no, no, please, um, please. <laughs> please. She's so, like, please help me. No, because I would say this is actually one of the areas that we struggle the most with on orders, just like as clinicians. So, like, I, I'm sure you guys remember the move to ICD-10 and how, you know, fantastically easy that was. Um, <laughs> Again, sarcasm. Sarcasm. <laughs> it's very hard for us to actually get an accurate ICD-10 code because we're going to somebody's home. So trying to get all of the detail about what's going on with their medical conditions can be really challenging. I mean, as funny as it sounds, like sometimes we just have a hard time getting an accurate med list because they might keep their medications in five different places and we're just following them around the house trying to find where they left all of the bottles. <laughs> and so you guys do med that- so you guys do med reconciliation as part of uh rehab? We have to. We Therapies. have to know what a person's on. Oh wow. Um, great. Because if we I don't, I mean a lot of it changes how you respond to exercise. So we don't if we don't know that somebody, for example, is on a beta blocker we could be sitting there measuring vital signs that are never going to change just because of their medications. And we should be using something different to assess how they're responding. Mm. So yes, we do. We do medical, we do medication reconciliation, but I would say, yes, like an accurate medical diagnosis is super huge for us. You know, we get a lot of the lack of coordination, how about gait, abnormality, generalized weakness. weakness. And those don't, <laughs> do those count still in, in the 2020 world? So they count. I mean, it, they're obviously they're different under Part A because yes. they're Part now a considered now, questionable. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they're now considered questionable encounters. But uh, under Part B, they're still, I would say, acceptable. But they're not really our best codes. I'm going to be honest. We are. I, I don't know how familiar you guys are with like the MIPS program and registries and quality reporting and stuff like that. But one of the things that we are finding as professions is that we are having a hard time supporting our place in conditions like Parkinson's or CHF or COPD because we're not coding them. Mm. We're so busy coding the weakness and the gait abnormality that we forget to code the COPD. And the Medicare says, well, in the claims data, there's no diagnosis of COPD. Why should a PT treat COPD? So like, uh, whose responsibility is it to identify the list of ICD-10 codes, you guys or the ordering provider? Medicare has told us it really should come from the physician. We have a, a responsibility to code as accurately as we can. But in their training on ICD-10, they said we should do everything we can to get it from a referring physician, so which do you poor Katie got, sometimes become her job. Do you guys Go provide ahead. a special ordering form or process to your referring providers to help guide them through what you want? We, we had, Katie, I don't know if we still have it, but we had when ICD-10 first came out, it was... I, I don't want to call it a cheat sheet because there's no way you can cheat yourself through ICD-10, but it was <laughs> like, there's just no way there's 68,000 of them, but it was, Hey, if this person has a, a stroke, for example, you want to start in maybe 
I-69 because that's where all of the sequelae from stroke start from. And then obviously like the rest of the digits, we need help from the physician on. And that was how we went about it because they're just, there is so much specificity, uh, especially the fracture codes. I mean, the the level of specificity. You mean like so hard. left arm uh, at the, like the level of the, like, you know, like distal or yeah. proximal. Yeah. And it's like, it's, it just becomes so crazy. Twisted to yeah. the right about 12 degrees. And I'm like, I cannot see that as a physical therapist. I just, I, I, there's I gotta be. So you have to go back to the physician then and say, I'm sorry, we can't see this patient till we have a better code. So that is a delay. We need a better code. We need better codes. How often does yeah. that happen? Honestly, I don't know. And by better code, we're saying, let me make sure. Accurate um, code. Well, most specific possible, Mo- oh, Most right? specific, yes. Most specific possible, yeah. Because there are sometimes you just don't know. Like, and so most specific and more comprehensive, meaning you would actually prefer a list of codes. Is that right? Like a, a weakness code, a COPD code, a CHF code, if they have all of those conditions. If they have all of those conditions, yes, it would I, be super helpful. I don't think a lot of physicians know no, they want the e- that no, those ancillary no. yeah. codes should be included. Absolutely. Everyone is looking for the least amount of work that could possibly get done what they need. You know, CBC, yeah. CMP, if you're ordering labs, diagnosis, dementia, you know, I mean, so, PTOT. Eval and treat, diagnosis, gait abnormality. So I'm really curious about like processes. So how do most providers actually refer to you? What is the actual process? Is it like a fax from a handwritten thing? And then, so is there some sort of cheat sheet you give folks or or no? So we do have a referral form that can be used and it is comprehensive, like starting with the patient demographics, everything that we need to go to their home as an opportunity to list a diagnosis code that they may or may not do do appropriately, and then any indications for referral, things that they want us that it, it, things that they want to you know make sure we're doing home safety assessment, okay. ADL training, and this is these are paper order forms. It's a paper order okay. that can then the the doctor signs everything's on there, facts to us. Having said that, what we what we need for start of care is a valid order and demographic. So mm-hmm. we have a form that they can use. A lot of offices in the world of EMRs today, electronic medical records, they have a way of sending data to us electronically, and we do accept that data okay. if it's faxed through their EMR or if they print it and fax it separately. So every, I mean, it, every office does it differently. We sure. try. We so try. that's complicated. Wait, right? every Everybody's, office within Fox or your no, talking, every 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 outside oh, referring, every primary, referring, uh-huh, yeah, referring doctor. Yeah, yeah. So I'm just, you know, we try and keep it simple as much as in, as much information as we need that Megan, you know, in, indicated. We also try and keep the process simple so we right. can see their patients. And so there's not a break in care and there's, right. you know, so, you know, it's simple, but, you know, things are often, you know, left out. So they do fax it to us. A lot of times, you know, I meant to say something earlier, Dr. Shimbin. So like, hey, we don't go and like, you know, see patients outside and be like, oh, you need therapy. Come to yeah. Fox. Right. Patients will often call us because they know a brother or sister who had Fox and they love that therapist. So they'll call us. And then we will then send a request to the provider. And how do you do that? Do you actually end up going to the provider's office or do you send them a fax? Do we you will send them a call fax. Them? And most if most providers in the in the area. And- I love how high tech it is. We just send a fax. <laughs> we, yeah. It's so sad that what faxing has become like and the it's standard. it's all through an app, though. It's really fancy. We, oh, have, we okay, have an fine. app that we can do this through. So that's okay. kind of nice because I don't right. have an actual Hold fax. on one, one second. Yeah. Um, anybody in the background, just can you guys mute your mute yourselves or in the paper, background? Paper yeah. shuffling. Paper shuffling. Yeah. Okay. Keep going. So we will fax a request to a physician or to an office. And most offices in areas that we're getting calls, we have relationships with the offices. So for them to get it wouldn't be 
unusual, but that's why we have account managers in the area that that are supposed to have those relationships. So if we see that or if we are aware we're going to send a request, we will then go to the office to to explain because I'll get requests for some offices that I don't necessarily have a relationship with, but I'll go to explain because if they see, you know, they're going to be like, who is this and what is this and who's Fox? So I we take it upon ourselves to to make sure that transition happens because that patient has called us to get the therapy. Or we then encourage the patient, you know, you best should call your physician, just make them aware that you called us and they're going to be seeing something from us. You know, we, we, we implement a lot of ways to get things done while we're still right. kind of growing and, and that newer, newer, but not new provider of, of what we do. Yeah. There's a lot of ways. we. I mean, it's so crazy because it what, what you are is like almost in constant startup mode. You're it having, seems, feels like it. It feels like <laughs> it. No, I know the feeling. It's like constantly like, hey, we're, we have this great thing. And everyone's like, what? What? I never heard of it. You have to, you could get this in the home. You fill out this form or you send us an order. And it's it's a constant battle of educating and re-educating because it's not, it's just not in everybody's sort of. It's, it's just, not their routine. It's, it's not like, their it's routine. It's not their train of thought. Because right. we all have a process. You know, we right. all have a flow. Right, 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 And right. if it's something new, you're like, whoa. Like, or they're like, oh, you're not in our system. We can't fax to you. It's kind of like, let's make that. It seems so oh, yeah, Alex, like, Alex just had a stroke. Yeah. You have CVA just now. You're not in our system, so we can't refer to you. I need I physical therapy like, now. Yeah, actually, speech language pathologist yeah. needs to come into a cognitive test right now. Um, but that's sad. I that mean, is a barrier. And that is sad. You know, it is unfortunate because a lot of we have there's, you know. What what EHR do you guys use on your end or what technology tool? What's the main or or is it all manual or? It's definitely not manual, but I don't know if Megan or like what, what, well, we have a documentation program our, our therapists use called Rain Tree. That's where they document Rain things, Tree. But yeah. that's not a brain, rain, 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 like rain, tree. rain tree. Okay. They use that for their documentation and that's how we kind of collaborate our, a lot of our data. Uh-huh. But Got I don't it. know if there's. Is that like an industry wide thing or is no, that like a homegrown? No, as far grown? as I know, it's a, it's a Fox developed. Oh, interesting. I'm helping interesting. Megan if, if she was on mute. I don't know if she can t- pitch in. She Megan, is, it, is that a standard? Yeah, no, it actually is an industry-wide. Oh, industry. okay. I didn't even know that. Yeah, <laughs> no, Raintree is not ours. We do not own it. We have customized it a lot because of the house call nature of our practice. There are some other really big Part B rehab providers that use it as well, um, but they're brick and mortar providers. And it actually, it's my understanding, Raintree was specifically designed for physicians their therapy component is sort of an offshoot of it in their documentation system. Cool. Hmm. Little history on Rain Tree. Yeah, I didn't even know uh, that either. See, we've developed, there's always so many changes. Like every weekend they're updating that I just thought it was our system. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's, 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 right now. that's where the customization comes yes. in and that's why we update so frequently. That's but, awesome. Yeah. That's just great customer service. Because we customize a lot. Yeah, yeah we Absolutely. definitely do. Okay, so let me, let's, let me just kind of, I like, I like to rein it in and I think Alex likes to rein it in more, but I'm going to rein this all in. So let's just sort of summarize where we're at, which we basically have... Fox Rehab, which is providing Part B rehab in the home, physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech language pathology, billing Part B Medicare, which goes 80-20 split. You get the 80% is definitely paid for, 20% by the secondaries, although sometimes people's secondaries either don't pay or patients don't have part their secondary in place, but that's just a small barrier to getting in the home. That orders must come from an NP, a PA, or an MD or DO, anybody who is sort of a qualified ordering provider. And they must come to you with demographic information. They must come to you with a diagnosis and the types of services that they are asking for, like PT, OT, speech language pathology, with then some diagnoses codes below it. You guys then reach out to the patient, contact them, their POA or their you know power of attorney, figure out how to set that up. You then make arrangements. You go in. You decide what the based on what you see in front of you, what the medical necessity is. There are caps of 2080 for PT and speech squished together and OT by itself, but yet with modifiers, you can exceed those 
visit numbers based on sort of maintenance types of therapy and that the unit economics are such that you've got $100 per visit you are actually collecting for for each visit. And so the patient is getting about 20 of each, 20 of the speech and the, and the PT and 20 of the OT, but it can exceed that. And I think sort of that's sort of where we're that at. That was a really good summary. Are it you getting good. ready to fire me? <laughs> <laughs> what am I even I, here for anymore? <laughs> I took a shot before I came here. <laughs> I felt really good about that. That was very good. Thank you. I was working on that. Um, but I want to ask about DME, durable medical equipment, and how that fits into your workflow. Because actually, when I was thinking about this podcast last night, because I sent you these questions last night specifically about durable medical equipment, I'm fascinated because... DME is like a nightmare for physicians. Like it's straight up nightmare of how to order it. You got so many different things you got to do and then it comes back and it takes weeks and you do it wrong. So if a, a, a PT or an OT goes into the home and says, ah, this patient needs a bed or they need a wheelchair, they need a walker, they need something unusual like a splint. Can you walk me through the typical way that provide, um, that your providers sort of handle each of these, shall I call them sort of, whimsical thoughts that the patient actually needs this DME and then how do they get it into the house? How do you get it into their house? I think Megan's going to talk about this one. Oh, I'll take this yeah. one. What I'm going to start by saying it is an equal nightmare for PTOT and speech. Sweet. Like equal nightmare. <laughs> yeah. Because it, it usually starts with a conversation with the patient about, hey, I think you would benefit from A, B, C, whatever it is. We'll say a hospital bed. Uh, hospital bed, then you have to figure out, okay, is this going to be covered by their insurance? Hospital bed, uh, wheelchair, walker, some of that stuff, you know, most of that's covered by insurance as long as they haven't gotten a similar device in the last five years. Thank you, Medicare. If you've gotten a walker, maybe you can't get a wheelchair, you know, it's, it's a little bit crazy. If it's something that's not covered by Medicare, I actually think it's easier because then you can have a conversation with the patient about, okay, here's how you could get this. Can you give me you an example? Can you give me an example of something that would you just know is not going to be covered by Medicare? Sure. Like a, a three-in-one commode is not covered by Medicare. Does everybody know what that is? No. Okay. So it is, it's basically a seat with a hole in it. You can use it bedside to go to the the bathroom at night if you need to. You can put it over your toilet to make the toilet seat taller for you, or you can put it in the shower to sit in. Just why three, so, three, three in purposes. One. So the Alex, Swiss Army. It's Swiss, Swiss Army night of toilets. Swiss Got it. Yeah. And 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 it's it is not covered by Medicare. Patients must pay for that out of pocket. Yes. So then you can have the conversation about here are some places that you can go purchase it have a good time or you're calling a family member and saying, Hey, how do we get one of these? You know, called Amazon. They refer it. them to Amazon. You can Thank refer you, them Jeff to Bezos Amazon. We show. have some preferred providers that we usually refer people to. We say, Hey, this person's really good. Depending on the area. Like I know where I practice in New Jersey, we have a really good goodwill that actually has an entire DME building wow. like separate from the actual goodwill where people can donate their old stuff and you know you can purchase it i don't know if i'd want to use three it. in one commode though <laughs> i don't There's know that things. i would want to either but i know people have done it because it is significantly less expensive and it if you you know some people are like hey bottle of clorox i'm good yeah. i don't know that i personally would take that chance interesting yeah but it's a thing okay so um, so basically you you come up with a list of recommendations some of which you know are not going to be covered by medicare example a being three-in-one commode but then there's beds and walkers so how do you guys what's your process 
um, that you go through. And, and Katie's probably looking at me because she knows like this is this is part of our relationship. How this, it started. Is, this is a very special part of our <laughs> yes. relationship because we like in, in my own practice when I was doing house calls, I liked to control how the orders would happen because then we could follow through because the patients are calling and yelling at us. You know, not at you guys so much, but one, I would love to hear sort of like the, the the general gestalt of how you guys go about ordering DME that is able to be paid for by Medicare. See, this is interesting because I kind of want to hear how you guys do it. First. Okay, we'll <laughs> we'll exchange stories here. You tell yeah. me, you tell me, you. I'll tell you me after. Yeah, I'll go first. Um, yeah. So, and some of this, you know, some of this has changed significantly in the last couple of years because of how Medicare has decided they're going to pay for equipment. I used to have a favorite provider that I always called and because he was quick, his stuff was really good, and he gave my patients a lot of choice in, in what the but, actual but device But you was. couldn't be ordering it, though, right? Like, you would recommend it, but nope. that, that person would, would have to go back. It, yeah, And then there had to be a call to the referring physician saying, hey, this is what I think this person needs. This is why. Can you send an order to? Got it. Got because it. we as we as providers can't. It's something we've actually lobbied for yeah. um, a couple different times and we've never gotten there. Right. Especially for the simple stuff. But yes, we then have to call the physician or at our practice, a member of the office may call on our behalf or send an order for to try and get the equipment. They then have to send an order to the DME provider. Then somebody might be the patient, might be the therapist, might be the physician, gets a call from the DME provider if the order is specific, not specific enough, you know, depending on there, this is where like that equal nightmare comes in. Yeah. And eventually the piece of equipment gets delivered to the patient's home. Right. It's, it's weeks. And you, and you guys are good at setting the, uh, managing the expectations, if you will, of the family, of the patient to say, listen, we're going to order you a bed, but it could take two weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Three weeks, four weeks. Some, I mean, I, a couple of years ago, they were out of semi-electric beds around here. I think the trees all died yeah. or something. I'm not sure what happened, but yeah. So, okay. So basically that's what you guys are. So let me just tell you sort of like I reflected upon that process when I was, you know, very heavily into doing house calls and I, here's what I came up with. I came up with a plan. I said, if you think the patient needs D- DME, you don't, don't go about finding a, a a provider of that DME for me. As a provider, as a doctor, I am going to identify the companies that we work well with, right? Because they know our they know our providers' names, they know our NPI numbers, they have a, we have a good rapport with them. We can call them and say, "Hey, what's going on with this bed? What's going on with this wheelchair? What's going on with this walker?" As opposed to you guys choosing the DME provider, and then we're like, "But we don't even know them," and that's a one eight hundred number that I have to now sit through a whole new tree, and I don't know the back office number. So, from a workflow perspective, what we did was we flipped it on its head and said, if you think the patient needs this, let us know. We will order it our own way so we can track it. And that was just because we were in the volume business. You know, we have, you know, lots and lots of patients who are all debilitated, who needed lots of stuff. So we actually had to have sort of workflows integrated into our own practice that were separate and different from a lot of other practices, which may just do onesie twosie types of stuff and are very happy to have a referral of a DME company brought to them. We wanted to be the ones to be in charge of that. So that's the difference. And that's how Katie and I got to know each other. Very well. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I would say you guys are the exception, not the norm. I know every, like, every time I talk to a referring physician, they were like, can you just handle it? And I was like, I handle as much of it as I can, but at some point I need you to sign a piece of paper. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, true that, true that. And and actually, one of the things that I find that's really interesting about this DME thing is that as a as a just a general provider of medicine, an MD and NP or PA, like how do we know? I mean, well, you now you have to order a wheelchair to say what what level the armrests are on, and it needs like foot things, and it's got to be this wide and this weight and K this, and I mean, it's a vocabulary list. There's no way for us to know it. You guys know it. And, and so we just try, I, I, I tell providers all the time, if you are going to order a durable medical equipment, a piece of durable medical equipment, please do not do it without the assistance of PT mm-hmm. or OT or SLP, because we can't guess. And because we're going to order it wrong, we're going to order the wrong bed rails or, you know, just there's details that are just so microscopic that we're going to do a bad job if we try to broad stroke it and just try and hit it with a hammer. So that is one of the things that I have really appreciated about having, you know, excellent therapies in the home is that they assist tremendously with getting the right equipment into the home. Even if we're in charge of ordering it, it, the information that we require to get that order done is coming from an expert. That's that's my reflection on that. Fair enough. Fair enough. Can I just say thank you? Because most people don't necessarily <laughs> recognize. No, I'm serious. The, the detail that has to go into ordering a piece it's of painful. DME. It's painful. It, it's a lot. And especially if you order the wrong thing, oh, you set it. the patient up for failure because they can't get another one. And it's yeah. it, so, yes. 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 <laughs> Amen. Okay. So just a quick question. And then I think we're going to do a wrap up. Katie, in your experience, how effective is going directly to consumers, directly to patients for getting them to get their own services, to advocate for themselves with their providers? You know, we do do a lot of community outreach. We, we try to get involved at senior centers and, yeah. you know, do general right. like fall presentations and like information for the community. From my experience, it's it's not very successful. Oh, interesting. Okay. Some, some areas, I have some friends in New Jersey that have had great success and maybe because Fox has been in New Jersey since, you know, since 1998, been there a lot longer. There's a lot more people know what Fox is in New Jersey. Yeah. And maybe we haven't done enough of it. Maybe we haven't done it in the right areas. You know, when we do these presentations, people are always interested, but it, you know, you, it just kind of like there's really unless they call me directly, I almost don't know if they're go if they have followed through. They may have called the Fox one eight hundred number. I mean that may happen. I'm not really I, you know so yeah. many patients that I can't follow through on everything. But you know there's a value to, to 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 educating the community. But in terms of that, we don't see a lot of return on that because they always say I'm going to call my physician. I want to see if my physician oh, and they don't know anything. And the doctors generally don't. They're like, "What? Who's yeah. Fox? Bye bye." Yeah. I mean, it it just it depends. I mean, we get just just something I was meant to touch earlier. You know, we get a lot of PT referrals. You know, most pay, every every referral we get, I don't know how many percent, but most of them they definitely have PT on the referral. Yeah. That that's a that's a that's a that's a need for this this individual. When we do an assessment, and Megan will probably talk into this, and even John Ross, when we're in a, in a physical therapist does an assessment in the home, there's often other needs identified where they could benefit from OT and speech. so then how do you handle that? So we will, we will, you know, fax a request to the physician, you know, with, you know, a statement from the from the therapist or like, you know, why they realize that uh, the patient uh, needs more. Yeah. Why? Like what happened? Because the that doctor they saw. didn't know what was on the menu. Right. I mean, because the doctor, as a physician, you know, unless you're a house call practice, which is different for you, but most providers, you don't see what the patient does in the morning to get up to come to you to the office. Yeah. You just see what they've looked like. Now, if they yeah. look disheveled, obviously, maybe they need help with some ADLs. Maybe like they yeah. can't button their shirt. 
but we get to see everything in the home. Like, yep. like Megan said, we'll have them yep. do X, Y, and Z. Show us, you know. So based. not knowing what's on the menu problem and not knowing the patient in, in its in their entirety because you don't see them in their, right. in their sort of natural habitat. There's lots of things. There so, is yeah. no menu. They're trying to guess what's on the menu. There right. is no menu. <laughs> That's no the menu. problem. That, there is no menu. Right. That's There's the problem. No okay, we'll uh, make the menu. I want this. a hamburger with cheese. <laughs> we don't have, <laughs> we don't do cheeseburgers okay. here. Okay. What do you, uh, they, <laughs> what do they, you have? They, Chinese food. It's no, only Chinese no, food no, here. No, they don't even tell you. You have to like, no. The system is so broken. We're back to the broken system. I mean, the nice thing is most physicians, I mean, when we, when most providers they don't disagree with the therapist because our therapists are licensed and they're professionals. They right. they are yeah. have the ability like, to and develop like, these we can't do any, we can't, we can't hurt the person. We can only help them here. Yeah, so they don't push back. I mean, maybe some people will, but we're you know when we're in the home, we're trying to do the best for them in every aspect of of their life. I mean, yeah. it's, uh, that's the benefit of doing what yeah. we do in the home. Yeah, yeah. So so that was you know an offshoot answer to your question. I, well, I do appreciate it. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we've we've been at this for a while. I think we got a lot of great stuff, Alex. This is phenomenal. Phenomenal. Thank you so much. Well, thank you guys yeah. so. Listen, John Ross and Megan, thank you so much for being available from a distance. We, I'd love to talk to you guys and more about what you guys are up to. Is there a great way that we can have them contact Fox? What's the best way to contact Fox? If somebody's listening, this is like, I really need to get Parpy Rehab. We have a website. Oh, oh our yeah. website, foxrehab.org. If okay. you're, if you're savvy so on the Fox internet, foxrehab.org. Foxrehab.org. You can always find information on there. Yeah. If someone is interested in calling our home office, that number is 877-407-3422. And that will be on Fantastic. our and our Facebook our, uh, well, page, uh, yeah. whatever, well, something. Wherever yeah. you can find us. Yeah, wherever you Medicare. find us, you'll have to seek and find us. <laughs> we'll it's like less of healthcare. Go figure it out yourself. <laughs> we'll fax you something. <laughs> oh, gosh. All right, you can You have been listening to the Mastering Medicare podcast. Visit masteringmedicare.net for show notes, additional episodes, and valuable resources. 